what we're fighting for right now is the culture is in collapse. The Catholic Church is literally the only institution left that's standing for truth or is in a position to stand for truth. And I think there's only one organization within the Catholic Church that can actually save the Catholic Church, and that's the Catholic schools. If we don't get Catholic schools set right, there isn't going to be anybody in the pews a generation from now. I'm Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of the Conscience Project. In this episode of Religious Freedom Matters, Joan Desmond from the National Catholic Register and I are coming to the end of our season on school choice. We have two questions. Are Catholic schools ready for school choice? Is America? For decades, government-run schools have held a monopoly over our country's educational system. But as more and more parents are looking for alternatives to their local public schools, it's only natural to find increased support for school choice initiatives that allow public funds to travel with children to the schools their families believe are the best fit. Our expert guests for this episode are Thomas Carroll, superintendent of Boston's Catholic schools, and Leslie Heiner from EdChoice. They've been working hard to prepare Catholic schools and our country for this sea change in education. Thank you so much, Joan, for joining me again for this uh, final episode of our school choice season. I think it's really exciting what we've been able to hear so far. Hey, Andrea, I totally agree. This has been such an exciting series to highlight the key takeaways for the school choice movement. And one of my personal heroes is Tom Carroll, the superintendent of the Archdiocese of Boston Schools. I'm thrilled he's on the show today. Our first guest on today's episode is Thomas Carroll, Superintendent of Schools for the Archdiocese of Boston and Cardinal O'Malley's Secretary of Education. Tom oversees 101 schools with 32,500 students, 3,000 teachers, and 1,200 support staff. Under Tom's leadership, enrollment has risen by almost 6,000 students in the past 18 months, and he has taken bold steps to strengthen the Catholic identity of Boston's Catholic schools. Tom is also focused on recruiting faithful Catholics for leadership and teaching positions. Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to join you. Tom, it's such a pleasure to have you on. This is going to be fun. Now, Tom, I just mentioned the surge of enrollment under your leadership in Boston's Catholic schools. Have these increases been seen across the archdiocese? And how does this affect the health of the church in Boston? So COVID, in a strange way, has been good for the Catholic church in terms of our brand recognition. And the reason I say that is, although all the schools were closed when COVID first hit, uh, once we got through the initial few months, we had to make a decision on whether we were going to be open and the public schools had to decide what they would do. In Massachusetts, every single public school was closed that first full year of COVID. And we decided early and quite loudly that we were going to be open. All the kids wanted to be back in school. All the parents wanted the children to be back in school. And everybody wanted to be together. And faith formation is about accompanying children um, when you're trying to evangelize children and draw them close to God. So we thought it was very important. The in-person piece was important for social reasons, but also for faith formation reasons. And parents responded to it. In short, our marketing message wasn't that complicated. We were open. They were closed. We like your children. The other people are trying to stay away from them. So that message, you know, I'm, I'm being somewhat humorous, but that message resonated with parents and parents understood that we were very excited to have their kids back with us. And they responded to that. 
The second year, we wondered whether a lot of the, we, a lot of public school parents had switched in, whether those public school parents who did not plan on paying tuition originally, whether they would just kind of the tide came in and the tide would go out. But the following year, we got 4,400 the first year. We got another 1,300 the second year on top of that. So the people who came stayed, and a lot of their neighbors and friends realized, kind of a little too late, but uh, realized that they made a mistake keeping their kids with the public schools, which in many cases have become remediation factories because they lost an entire year of instruction, caused all kinds of social emotional issues too. You know, Tom, we're going to talk more about the special work that you've been doing in Boston, but I just wanted to flag for everybody. There was a great report that came out recently talking about the surge of enrollment across the country in our Catholic schools, taking it from, you know, kind of the crisis mode of the lowest enrollment that we'd seen in in decades to now increasing somewhat like 3.5%, which is an incredible achievement. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, this has been a realigning moment for education and for kind of more narrowly the school choice issue. For years, the teachers unions have created PTAs, Parent Teacher Association, trying to create the impression that the interests of the teachers unions and the interests of the parents were identical. And what this ripped bare for everybody in the country to see is their interests may overlap, but they're not perfectly aligned. And the teachers' union's interest on having schools closed was not the same as the interest of parents. So I think there's going to be a realignment on that issue. And then secondly, there's been this push to proselytize children, not in faith, but in ideology and in politics in the public schools. And a lot of parents, and I'm in a state that most people would, in Massachusetts would consider to be pretty progressive, but whether somebody is liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat, they don't send their kids to school for politics or to have ideology crammed down their throats. So I think what's also happening is people are seeing a cleavage between what some school districts are interested in proselytizing children on and what parents actually want their kids to learn in school. And so that's going to cause a second wedge, if you will, between the parents and the teachers unions because their interests are not aligned right now. And I think they're making a mistake. And I think they should get aligned. I'm hoping they, I'm not hoping they continue this, even though it would benefit Catholic schools. I'm hoping for the sake of the children in public schools, where most of the kids are, that they back off on the politics and the ideology and just get back to the fundamentals of trying to inspire children intellectually. Well, Tom, what I think is so impressive is that you had to not only manage this crisis, you also had to manage the misinformation about Catholic schools as being, you know, elite schools for only the top 1% or an attempt to confuse your typical, ordinary, relatively accessible Catholic school with elite independent schools that were much more expensive. And I remember seeing this in a New York Times article and thinking, this is like complete misinformation about a typical school in the life of a New York City kid. And so it was just really impressive to see that you broke through that fog of misinformation. But you also did some other things. You launched a new initiative within the diocese. It's a blended virtual school. Tell us about your role in founding this school and its success so far. Sure. So Lumen Verum Academy, and Lumen Verum stands for true light. Uh, it's Latin for mm -hmm. true light, as in the true light of God, and that each of us should be a light for our faith and how we lead our lives, and that applies to children as well. So it's a classical school. We teach through the Socratic method. 
The big difference is most of the instruction is virtual and on four out of the five days. And one day, because we have a heavy focus on faith formation, is in-person faith formation with also some other activities added into that day as well. And so the, the virtue of the virtual is the entire world, basically the entire English-speaking world becomes our extended faculty. These kids are not only getting kind of a classical Western Catholic intellectual tradition type education, but they're also learning for some of the leading lights in the country. So George Weigel, for example, is going to be teaching uh, totalitarianism in the 20th century through the lens of the life of St. John Paul II. That's not happening in any other school in the country. Edward Habsburg, the Hungarian ambassador to the Vatican, who is the descendant of the Habsburg monarchy that uh, has been around for 700 years and once was the Holy Roman Empire, is teaching that 700 years of history in Europe through the lens of his family. And he's also teaching what the role of a diplomat to the Vatican is. We have people like Christophonic, Jason Everett, Sisters of Life for giving us two days a month. We have Charles Camosi, who is a professor at Fordham, was on sabbatical this year, is one of our distinguished guest lecturers, uh, Mary Rice Hassan. So these kids at a pretty young age were eventually be six through 12, but right now we're six through eight. Mm-hmm. They're getting a dazzling array of lecturers and that are being taught you know, moral theology at a very, very deep level. And we also have, for example, debate and writing and other things at a very high level. We're teaching kids the art of persuasion. So this isn't kind of an insular Benedict option type approach. We do have all faithful families and the teachers to work there. Everybody in the school has to recite publicly the profession of faith and the oath of fidelity in front of the students and in front of the parents, which is a very powerful ceremony. But basically to communicate, we're not messing around, that we're here to teach the full magisterium of the Catholic Church. And that's what, you know, and our primary goal, the organizing mission of the school is we're trying to bring children close to God and to their eternal salvation is our number one goal. No, I was going to say, Tom, I I saw when it was first developing and you were promoting, you do, first off, a fantastic job promoting your work. Um, but as a mother of many, and I've I've done, you know, had kids homeschooled, we were out of the country, I had kids um, learning online through different gifted programs where they were connecting with peers and teachers in different places of the world. And I thought, wow, this is great that our Catholic schools are really taking advantage of all the different kind of learning options that we've had in education. We're not cookie cutter schools anymore. You know, we still have um, our parish-based schools, but even within that parish-based school, there's there's a lot more creativity. And and again, in the, the end game is heaven, but whether we get there with classical education or blended online learning, it really gives parents like me the chance to choose the best fit for our children and our family. And I just think it's great. I want to applaud you for really, um, you know, doing what I hope is just the beginning for Catholic education across the country. We hope it inspires others, but the, the, I never worked in a diocese before. I didn't go to a Catholic school. I wasn't Catholic as a child. I'm a Catholic convert. So this whole experience, I'm kind of an unlikely candidate to be a school superintendent. <laughs> but but the, but what the advantage of not having that, I, I mean, I've run schools before in Catholic scholarship funds and done advocacy with Cardinal Dolan and so forth. But 
So I, I have experience and kind of as Liam Neeson once said in the movie, taking a particular set of skills. <laughs> but but uh, the fresh set of eyes has been helpful because I think what we're fighting for right now is the culture is in collapse. The Catholic Church is literally the only institution left that's standing for truth or is in a position to stand for truth. And I don't think, I think there's only one organization within the Catholic Church that can actually save the Catholic Church, and that's the Catholic schools. If we don't get Catholic schools set right, there isn't going to be anybody in the pews a generation from now. So we're letting a lot of people come out of Catholic schools that believed what their mom told them in fifth grade, but by the time of graduation, they didn't believe in the Catholic faith anymore. And if you look at the rise of the nuns, meaning N-O-N-E, I'm in favor of the rise of the nuns, N-U-N-S, particularly the uh, Nashville Dominicans, I want to rise. <laughs> but um, my favorite religious order. But, uh, but given what's happened in the broader culture, which is secularizing at an alarming rate, it's doubly, triply important that we get our schools right. And that means we have to go back to first premises, which is these schools were created to evangelize our faith. They weren't created to create discount private schools that were almost as secular as a public school. We have to really think through who teaches in them. We have to think how the Catholic intellectual tradition is embraced in the school. And we have to be explicit that faith and reason are united. Uh, and we have to be explicit that what we're not going for is what I derisively call tail between the legs Catholics, Catholics who are embarrassed to admit to anybody they're Catholics. There's lots to be proud of to be Catholic, but we haven't actually taught a lot of kids that. You can't go anywhere in the globe where the poor, the dispossessed, the marginalized are being served and not run into a Catholic missionary. In almost every diocese, Catholic charities or the Catholic Church writ large is the largest nonprofit social service provider. And if you look at the grand sweep of history, you cannot conceive a Western culture if you subtract the Catholic Church. You can't look at another religion that has the intellectual tradition that the Catholic Church has. So I'm just frankly, I'm tired of apologizing. I'm mm -hmm. happy to be Catholic. I chose to be a Catholic. I'm proud to be a Catholic. And I think these, and I'm not suggesting these kids should be arrogantly proud. I think part of the virtues we try to instill in a Catholic education is humility. But we should be pretty darn excited to be Catholic and proud of the intellectual titans that define the Catholic intellectual tradition. But we can't expect kids to have that pride if we've never taught it in the first place. And we can't expect kids to put faith at the center of their life if we do religion 50 minutes a day, but the rest of the day is handed over to the secular gods. I just think your hybrid pro program also is really cool because we do have a supply chain problem in some places. California, for example, is very expensive to live in. It's hard to recruit teachers here. I like the idea that the hybrid program is both a model of what should be taught, but also increases access to really high quality curriculum when you don't have other options available to you on the ground at a particular moment. So such an interesting an initiative, and we're really excited to see where it goes. In terms of recruiting, Obviously, if you go virtual, it opens up who your faculty could be, but I'm spending probably 35% of my time as superintendent recruiting talent, both for school leaders mm -hmm. and I started this year in teachers. We have lots of fantastic principals, but they're not getting enough faithful Catholics out of the normal channels. So there's some great college. I flew to California, for example, Thomas Aquinas College, I spoke to about 45 kids. 
convinced 25 of them to, to seriously consider becoming teachers in Boston and switch to the other side of the country. I'm going to yeah, Ave Maria. I'm going to University of Dallas. I'm going to Wyoming Catholic College. We have two schools up in New Hampshire. Thomas Aquinas also has a campus in Massachusetts. Now they have an East Coast campus. And I'm finding the most spectacularly sports, the most spectacular kids. I probably shouldn't call them kids because they're adults. But seeing <laughs> that they're about to graduate, trained in kind of classically classical liberal arts education like Thomas Aquinas, but a lot of the schools that the Cardinal Newman Society has been touting. And every single one of them is faithful and every single one of them is intellectually curious, earnest about pursuing the intellectual life and looking for an intellectual community that's overtly Catholic and proudly Catholic. We're trying to create that community in Boston and we're having great success attracting young adults from across the country to teach in Boston because they see what we're creating. We're doing a lot of different things at the same time. And we're trying to make sure that we have the staff that will inspire and evangelize children. But we're also trying to create a culture of believers in Boston so that people become more and more comfortable pitching in and helping us out. Tom, I want to make two points. One is earlier in our series, we spoke with Lucia Lusondo, expert in Hispanic outreach and ministry in, in the church for several years. And we were talking about the growing um, number of Hispanics in the church and the disparate low percentage of Hispanics in our Catholic schools. And one of the solutions that Lucia spoke about was the importance of bringing on Hispanic, well-formed Catholic teachers into our schools. And later that day, after our interview, I saw that on Twitter, you were promoting outreach. Do you know any Hispanic uh, Catholics? Or you know, I think you were also identifying Haitians, other people that would be interested in joining Catholic schools in Boston. I thought it was a perfect um, response to an obvious disparity. Yeah, there's two. First of all, if you think about the history of Catholic education in the country, every ethnicity that came to this country, including, I'm kind of a mix of things, but uh, in, in my family, Irish, German, and Italian, but a few other things thrown in. But every ethnicity that came to the United States, the church spared no money to create a church for that particular ethnic group. Mm -hmm. So there was a time like in Brooklyn, if you were Italian, you knew you were going to St. Anthony's, you could be in the same neighborhood a block away and you were Irish, you were going to St. Patrick's. And the most spectacular churches and school buildings were created. Then fast forward to the 70s and 80s and the immigration's all coming, not all, but disproportionately on the Hispanic side, both Spanish speaking and Portuguese speaking families and certain Caribbean countries are speaking Creole. So, but now it's almost that the windows now closed. So we're not building schools, we're closing schools in their neighborhoods. And I think it's a stain on the Catholic church that we're not doing better outreach than we're doing now. So I have two solutions. One, I'm, I'm currently recruiting two young men who are from Brazil to come up because we have a very high Portuguese speaking population here. So mm -hmm. and paying for their immigration. So like we have immigration lawyers hired, which we do anyway, because we recruit priests from all over South and Central America. So we're now doing the same thing for teachers. The second thing and COVID interrupted is I'm a huge fan of Middlebury College's language immersion program. Mm -hmm. It's weeks, you can become fluent in almost any language you can imagine. Mandarin, Chinese, obviously Spanish, Portuguese, Arabic, Russian, what you have. And we have almost all of it within the, we have a lot of immigrant populations within the archdiocese. So we are now paying out of my office for teachers, anybody in a school building to go to Middlebury 
for seven weeks in the summer. And they also have a, an outpost in Monterey, California, which is a pretty nice time to spend, you know, party or July in. So, um, and we're paying, it's roughly $11,000 or so, $11,000, $12,000. So anyone can learn one of those languages and become conversationally fluent. So there's no excuse for an immigrant family to walk into a Catholic school and not have at least one person who speaks their native language. So if we can't find the people who naturally speak it, because that's how they grew up speaking it, we can turn anybody into a speaker of almost any second language. And we should spare no expense to do it because it's wrong for these people to come in and just get blank stares because nobody can talk to them in their native language. And it's inappropriate for us to have children translating for parents when we're having financial aid conversations. It's, it's awkward on both ends. I think it's inappropriate. So we're, we're doubling down on that now that hopefully Middlebury will restart their programs. I got one teacher in before the window closed down. And we're also talking to the seminary about sending priests as well. We don't have enough priests that, spe that speak. We have, I don't know, 15, 20 different languages spoken in our churches. So we need to have in all of our services, we need people to speak multiple languages. Tom, you give us a perfect segue about financial aid. We're going to be speaking with uh, Leslie Heiner from EdChoice in the latter part of our episode. But I looked and, and looked up Massachusetts. Massachusetts does not have any school choice initiatives uh, that are being listed. Tell us about what you're able to do out of your office and through the archdiocese to respond to the financial need and what role you think school choice from the government side can do to meet the desires of more families to take advantage of Catholic education in Boston? Sure. There, there are roughly three dozen states that have school choice programs, either a voucher program or a tax credit scholarship or education savings accounts. Before I took this job, I spent two years in D.C. lobbying on school choice, six years in New York, where we came heartbreakingly close. In Massachusetts, given the way politics are going here, it's not likely to be adopted. We do, although most people don't know it, I was shocked to find out when I showed up. We do have a voucher program for early childhood education that is both for public schools, public charters, and private schools, including religious schools, and we participate in it, and there are no religious liberty issues at all right now. There is a provision in the, uh, the Build Back Better federal bill that it would actually violate the religious liberty if anybody participates. So if that program gets through, it could screw up the Massachusetts program because it would strip away the religious protections. But I'm a huge fan of school choice. I think in all the states that were going to get it, basically all the red states or states that had Republican governors temporarily have gotten school choice. All the Most of the blue states that have always been blue haven't gotten it. There are exceptions. Illinois is an example. But uh, that's generally how it uh, comes out. So I think the answer is to change the federal tax code to incentivize donations to private scholarship programs, including Catholic schools. That's what I was working on. Uh, frankly, the politics changed after a couple of years and we weren't able to get it done, depending without naming the parties, because I'm not supposed to do politics in my current job. But there are certain scenarios that could play out in the next two or four years where the politics could shift around, where there would be an opening to do a, a federal tax credit scholarship, very similar to what Jeb Bush did in Florida, which is now generating, just in a Florida context, over a billion dollars in scholarships. It's the biggest uh, school choice program in the country, dramatically bigger than the Milwaukee program that more people are familiar with. Basically incentivize people to take their own money and donate it because they get a tax incentive to do it. 
So that's what I'm in favor of. I don't think we'll get it done at the state level in Massachusetts. If it gets done in the federal tax code, you'll have a 50 state school choice program. Tom, you did a fabulous video for Catholic Votes Edify, uh, and it's titled Put Catholic Back in Catholic Schools. It was launched during Catholic Schools Week. I think it's a wonderful reminder, and it can be spread and should be distributed to all of your relatives because it really does help center us on, on what matters and brings us back to the core mission of our Catholic schools. Many thanks to Tom Carroll, Superintendent of Catholic Schools for the Archdiocese of Boston. To find out more about what Tom and his team are doing, check out the website for the Archdiocese of Boston Schools at csoboston.org. Thanks again, Tom, for joining us. Thank Thank you, you. Tom. Stay tuned. Our next guest will give us an overview of trends in school choice initiatives across the nation and what you can do to help promote school choice where you live. Joining us now is Leslie Heiner, Vice President of Legal Affairs at EdChoice, the nation's leading educational choice organization. Leslie is a lifelong advocate for educational choice and freedom, pressing for the opportunity for all parents to decide how and where their children will be educated. Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters, Leslie. Thank you. It's a privilege to speak with you. Thanks. Hi, Leslie. Joan Desmond here. So great to have you on the show. And let's let's get moving. Leslie, can you sketch out what are the kinds of school choice initiatives adopted across the country at this point? Yes, be happy to. Let's start with the most popular. The most popular is education savings accounts. Education savings accounts are very much like a voucher. Most people tend to be familiar with voucher, which is like a scholarship, except that education savings account allow a parent to use that funding for tuition funding, but also for tutoring services, for other kinds of educational therapies a child may need, or if the parent needs to drive some distance to get the child to the right school that's the right fit then for some transportation dollars. Um, It's just, it's an all-inclusive way of allowing a parent to get the educational resources that that child needs. And so you find the biggest one right now in the country is in West Virginia. That's the state you want to look to, to more information about education savings accounts. Next, there are vouchers. Vouchers are, are more traditional There are forms of vouchers. The very first one was in Vermont that was adopted in 1869, but a voucher allows the parent to use the education funding for the child to pay tuition at a private school of the parent's choice. We next have tax credit scholarship programs. Uh, Arizona and Florida have the biggest programs in the country. And in that way, someone like you, Joan, you could start a nonprofit if you wanted to give out scholarships to kids to attend the school of their choice. Then I might give you a a contribution to your nonprofit, and you would make sure that the money then got to the child in the form of a scholarship to attend school. And I would, in turn, get some form of a state tax credit as the state's way of saying, thank you for helping us supply something that we see as a valuable service to parents. Those are the three largest forms of school choice that are available. 
Now, Leslie, I think it's it's interesting you mentioned the Maine's voucher system, and, and that's currently before the Supreme Court because they've got a curious limitation on the use of those vouchers to private schools that have what they consider a religious curriculum. And my hope is, after listening to some of the arguments and reading briefs, I know you filed a brief as well in that case, that the Supreme Court will again say that such discrimination against religious schools compared to more secular private schools is a violation of our First Amendment's free exercise guarantee. We also saw just a few few years ago in, in the Montana case, a case dealing with these wonderful private scholarships where you could get a, t- a state tax credit, and Montana put a similar restriction kind of pointing to their Blaine amendments, which we know are Correct. anti-Catholic in origin, but now are anti-religious in effect. And the Supreme Court said that was also you know, an unconstitutional limitation. But I wanted to ask you right now, we've been tracking the interest of parents in alternatives to education, especially during the pandemic, when public schools or government-run schools were closed. What are you seeing across the country as far as interest among parent advocates and lawmakers in broadening school choice initiatives in their states? Well, COVID brought about a situation where suddenly nobody knew what to do with the children. What do we do with the children? Do we mask them? Do we send them to school? Do, do we make them stay home? And and then if they stay home, what do they do? How do they get educated? Now, in the process, the, the great news is that parents who never really faced that question before had to face that question. Because so oftentimes we found that whatever solutions were found by a a public school or a private school, either one, may or may not have fit the parent's vision very well or left a parent with more questions than answers. And then, of course, it was very difficult for many of the schools to provide answers as they were also still trying to figure it out. Well, the upshot of this is now we have a parent base across the country that is much more informed about education and what is provided and how it's provided than ever before. Really haven't seen anything quite like this in my lifetime. There have always been parent advocates, but this is really across the board. Parents are, they're very curious. They want answers and they want to have that control over the life of their own children. One thing we've been talking about, and we have Tom Carroll on the show too, Tom Carroll, the superintendent Mm -hmm. of Boston schools, who's done a fabulous job of advocating for Catholic schools. And I'm wondering to what degree Catholic leaders need to do more? Like what, what do you think is the ideal Catholic leader to handle this moment in school choice and help direct parental you know, parental choice and and get get Catholic families focused on school choice in a new way. I think for uh, for Catholic leaders and frankly for all religious leaders, it's important for them to take a look at some other states uh, that are veterans at school choice. Indiana, uh, being an example, we have one of the biggest voucher programs here, and religious schools are right to be hesitant to be careful about their involvement in anything with government. Um, But what the schools here have found, and and in other places as well, 
that the more involved they are, the better the benefits. They're better able to stand up for themselves against regulation. And when they participate in the school choice programs, then the parents get that. They appreciate it. And the parents are more likely to even be involved in school and also to convince their neighbors that maybe their kids should be going to this school as well. We've certainly seen uh, quite a growth in uh, in schools, both in population and number of schools, um, since school choice programs have come along, especially so here in Indiana and the Catholic community. Um, putting the needs of the parents and the child first is is really the issue. For religious leaders, it's clear that if you're sending your child to that religious school, you want your child to be in a school either of your faith or in a school where you value that faith, and it's consistent with your view of the world. Um, There's a lot of power behind that, and we don't often talk about how strong people are both in their faith or how strong they are as parents to make this choice to send their children to a school of faith that is consistent with their values. That's a very positive step. So these parents, they are just the best to speak to this issue and to tell their own personal stories. Um, The faith leaders should take note of that and understand the power of their parishioners and the inspiration that these parents can bring to others. You know, Leslie, I want to thank you. I think you're absolutely right. Parents are waking up to their role as primary educators. We're feeling more empowered than ever before, um, which is, you know, one of those curious consequences of really having the rug pulled out from underneath us during this pandemic. And I can't help but thinking, you know, information is power. I'd love to direct all of our listeners right now, check out the website for EdChoice. You can, what I think is a fantastic dashboard to be able to understand what are the school choice programs that are in place across the country in your own state, get a better understanding of those and take that knowledge to your voting booth, to your congressman, to your state senator, really push this because you're absolutely right. Parents do have the power and voters have the power in ways that we never thought was imaginable before. So thank you again. Many thanks to Leslie Heiner from EdJoyce for joining us on Religious Freedom Matters. This has been a really great synopsis of what's out there in this new um, phase that we have in seeing school choice become a reality across the country. Thank you so much, Leslie. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Again, to learn more about school choice and what's going on in your state, check out Ed Choice's website at edchoice.org. Well, this wraps up our school choice season for Religious Freedom Matters. Joan and I hope you feel better informed and encouraged to advocate for school choice as a matter of religious freedom for parents and as a means to support the continued renewal of Catholic education. Joan, what were your thoughts on today's episode and what are the highlights that you think our listeners should take with them? Well, I think Leslie brought up some really key points about school choice developments. And what I've found in my own reporting is a lot of Catholics aren't really well informed about the options available to them or 
on the other hand, how they could advocate for school choice. And one one thing that I learned on the EdChoice website is that Leslie's organization is also doing parent as well as as lawmaker training. So parents have the option to get trained up by EdChoice to really make sure their family has the best options available to them. And I think that's super cool. Also, I mean, Tom Carroll, what's not to like? I mean, it's so awesome to have an advocate for Catholic education during one of the most serious crises facing the church in the United States in the last hundred years, the pandemic. Tom was there. He was there to keep the schools open. He was there to get the schools to be more Catholic, even as they were accepting public school students who may or may not have been Catholic. That's always a temptation to kind of back off, to just pump up your numbers. That's not what Tom did. And then he's talking about how to recruit and have better Catholic principals and and teachers. I was just so blown away by his strategy. And I really hope that educators across the country hear this podcast and are equally motivated to do the same. Well, I can't agree more with you. And I would encourage anyone that's listening to please let your friends know what you're hearing. And especially let the heads of school and principals of your local parish schools know that this is out there, that there's information and tools and that they're not alone in really trying to lead the charge and help bolster not only our Catholic schools, but help our ailing society to be able to face these challenges. It's been a pleasure for Joan and me to serve as your hosts for this school choice season of Religious Freedom Matters. Check out all of our episodes on this season at the websites of the National Catholic Register. That's ncregister.com and the website of the Conscience Project at conscience-project.org.